Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of the book club series where we feature a book each month and have a conversation with some of the incredible authors in our network. Enjoy the conversation and you can check out all of the great books and resources on our website www.redletterchristians.org. Uh, I'm really, really excited to have Duke Kwan and uh, Greg Thompson here tonight. Uh, their book, some of y'all read, we're not going to ask everybody if you did your homework, but this is it, Reparations. And I love the subtitle too, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. So I tore this thing up, y'all. Duke, <laughs> Greg, I got my highlighting all through yeah, it. Yeah, look at that. This is how you know I like the book is all the folds and colors in it and stuff. So, <laughs> and you know, before we dive into the content, I mean, we're going to get into the spectacular work y'all did on the book, but I, I, I'd just love to hear a little backdrop because I, I know a little bit about both y'all, but I'm sure other folks don't. You, I think it's probably helpful for po- people to know a little bit about each of you. And Duke, won't you start us out and then Greg, uh, tell us a little bit about each of you. Um, yeah, I'm a pastor in Washington, D.C., and part of a, a network of congregations called the Grace DC Network. Uh, we began our specific congregation, Grace Meridian Hill, about 10 years ago. And so that's really mainly what I do in terms of cultivating cross-cultural community, gospel-centered community, and, and all the rest um, in, in, in this rich and wild uh, town uh, in this neighborhood uh, that we're in. Uh, but for me, you know, really, that, that's, the, that's the setting um, within which my own convictions around reparations was fostered, and that is just living in a historically Black city where for us, the call to love neighbor means to understand um, Black intellectual traditions, to understand um, the Black church, to understand the history of our own city, uh, but also just the the testimonies and stories of of, of actual people, African-American neighbors to our left and to our right. And it's just in the midst of that study and that immersion for me, uh, that I began to understand better uh, that reparations really is a, it's a conversation that's been going on for centuries, for generations uh, within the Black community and far less so tragically um, in non-Black spaces and non-Native spaces. And um, so just recognizing that gap and growing into my own convictions and then seeing these things in scripture just came to the point of believing um, this is a Christian call. This is a, this is a moral mandate from God's word itself. We've just been trained not to see it, uh, but there are hosts of people that do see it and we need to be uh, mentored and trained by them. And that's what we try to do in the book is really amplify other voices, not our own and dig deep into um, uh, sort of black theological and historical traditions. And so uh, that's what we're trying to do. So that's a, a bit of where I'm coming from. It's awesome. And you, and you're real careful in the book to talk about, you know, the, the, overt reality that neither of you are african-american but you've done a lot of listening and learning and and uh, and so it's and, and i know a little bit about more about you greg we we've done a panel together and we, we were just reminiscing that we had a divine appointment bumping into each other in the kansas airport or something like that but uh i know i think you you know sharing a little of your history is is helpful to hear your passion and uh, you know maybe just a little bit about what you're doing now too because i'm pumped yeah sure thanks shane um so, I, I mean, I, this is a, a fusion of multiple things for me. So biographically, um, I'm from South Carolina. Um, my grandparents were in the Klan, and there's a whole history of, of this um, 
of anti-black racism that has just been a part of the culture that I grew up in. Um, I became a Christian in high school. Uh, a lot of it was in the kind of racial reconciliation movement that was going on in the, t- in the, in the mid eighties and nineties. I think some of that was mediated through promise keepers. Some of it was mediated through John Perkins and Tony Campolo and people like that. Um, and then um, I became a pastor. I worked, uh, I was a pastor for about 16 years um, and did a PhD at UVA with a, with a fellow named Charles Marsh, a theologian named Charles Marsh, um, who was the director of my dissertation. And I wrote on Martin Luther King and love. And after that really began to work in, in more um, strangely memorialization work, like public memorialization, thinking about how our landscapes tell particular kind of stories. And so worked on a project in Memphis um, at Claiborne Temple, the site of MLK's last march. And now I'm leading a project um, called Voices Underground. It's, it's in Chester County, Pennsylvania to build a national memorial of the Underground Railroad there. Um, and so it's a fusion really of, of biographical, uh, academic and you know theological and vocational things all smashed up together here. And I'll, last thing I'll say about it is very, this particular book emerged because I live in between two spaces. Um, I'm, I spend a lot of my working life in, in largely black spaces. And my, a lot of my church life has been in more white evangelical kind of spaces. And I realized that um, white folks were talking about reconciliation, maybe institutional reform sometimes if they're Brian Stevenson fans, but they're, they're talking about um, racial reconciliation and that most of the black folks that I've worked with were talking about reparations. And I realized that there was a huge discursive gap between those two communities. And this book is in part written to try to bridge that gap. Ooh, yeah, well, that's it. That's a good, that's a good segue into this, uh, you, you know, th- this way that you dissect racism in the book, right? You, you, you uh, kind of talk about the different facets of it, but you, one of those being personal, right? And that's where we talk about that reconciliation stuff. We need to, you know, heal the racism in our own hearts. And if you're not careful, you get into the promise keepers holding hands, just black folks and white folks holding hands with each other. And you, you, you know, there's, there's a piece of that that's true, right? That we need the healing of our hearts. Um, and then you talk about the social piece of it, what Martin Luther King, uh, you know, lamented the most segregated hour in the world, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And then you talk about the institutional piece, you know, uh, obviously mass incarceration, policing, you know, economic differences between white folks and people of color, black folks in particular. Um, but then the, the framework you all use, and I want you to say more about this, Duke, to start us out is, uh, is that, 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 you know, a big tent for this is the, that, that we have a culture of it. So talk a little bit more about that framework, because it kind of integrates the, and honors the other pieces, but gives us a, a more holistic, <clears throat> integral way of thinking about it, right? That's right. No, we, well, we, we, we do identify racism as being all of those things, having all of those dimensions. And, um, but we believe that the source and the sum of all those things is a culture. Um, and so we define racism um, as being a cultural problem, a cultural order, a cultural, in fact, disorder, a sickness. Um, and, uh, you know, another way maybe to describe that is to see it as an ecosystem um, right, so not just discrete organism, organisms, but it's also the water and the air, and it's the the network and the the relationships between those disparate parts that come together to form the whole thing, which is precisely what makes it so difficult to identify what it is and how it operates. Right, so we're trying to just drill down into understanding better the dynamic of how racism operates, so as to lead us to a definition of racism that requires something like reparations, something mm-hmm. that broad, deep, 
um, and demanding, as it were, um, and to say that if all you think racism is, is broken relationships, you'll see no room and no need for something like reparations. It'll be far too radical. Uh, if all you think it is, is, is a bunch of bad ideas that you need to repent of, then reparations lies far beyond the scope of what the Bible has to say about what we need to do to find healing. But if this is a cultural problem, something maybe akin to what the Bible calls the world, right? It's, it's mm. something that's in you. It's something around you. It's something that's embedded in institutions. It's something that cuts across all of it, right? And something that requires nothing less than the slaughter of the Son of God to actually uh, break through and mm. to defeat and destroy and find victory over. Um, it, it's something more like that. And so we try to make sure uh, that we see that kind of starting point as being our first diagnosis and our big challenge before us. It's only when you start there, I think, that you really can arrive at reparations being the answer to that thing, that sucker. <laughs> yeah, I know we called it book club, but we have a church club up in here tonight. Yeah, that's a good word. You want to add anything to that, Greg? Yeah, well, I think I think to get to reparations, you have to first understand that that racism is a cultural order. It's not just a discrete institutional or personal or relational phenomenon, like Duke said. The second thing, though, is you have to understand that 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 the nature of that cultural order is that it is it privileges folks that it deems to be white. OK, um, that's what we call white supremacy in the book. and We can talk about that. But the third thing to understand is that the effect of that white supremacist cultural order is theft. And it's really when you see all three of those things together that there's a culture that privileges whiteness and that steals from everybody else. That's when reparations begins to make sense. And so there's this yeah. chain, there's this conceptual chain that you have to follow each one of those, or you have to kind of follow every stone across the stream in order to really get to this, this place. Yeah. And I like how you talk about theft in not just terms of money, right? You do. That's one of the categories, but you know, a, a lot of people think about reparations and they just start thinking about, paying people back for their stolen labor and stolen land. And, and you, I think you say that it's certainly not less than that, but it's also more than that. And you okay. kind of break it down in the theft of truth, the theft of power and the theft of wealth. Uh, so say a little bit more about those because they are kind of, they're interconnected, but they're distinct from each other. And uh, uh, you, you break yeah. it down good in the book. One of y'all. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, and I, I think, given that we're arguing from on the basis of a cultural order that meaning it, it's, it's structures of language, it's structures of, of psychological meaning, it's economics, it's land use. All of these things were oriented towards the, the supremacy of people that it deemed to be white and the correlative denigration of people that it that deemed to be not white. Um, that means that, that the, the effects of that are not going to just be economic, but they're, they're at all of those levels, right? Um, and I think while we think the, uh, there's an economic horizon, certainly, we believe that a lot of the conversations about reparations have uh, overly diminished the, the, the effect of white supremacy, just how horrible it's been, and so made it a little bit more myopic than it needs to be. And so we talk about theft of truth, and that's simply just saying that white supremacy was an account of history. It was actually an account of creation, um, an account of personhood, and that, that account has shaped our landscapes. It's shaped our yeah. history books. It's shaped our educational institutions. So that's what we mean when we say it's a theft of truth about what it means to be a person and who we are as a people. The theft of power really is obviously there's bodily power and we talk about enslavement and we talk about incarceration, but there's institutional power and political power and cultural power. I mean, the franchise is really bound up with this, this whole thing. There, that's one of the horizons of this, the voting rights. So the political power and then wealth, 
really white supremacy stole wealth by extracting it from from black labor and then also historically obstructing uh, non-white attempts to gain wealth. And so we think that if we're going to really address or repair this cultural order, we got to deal with all three of those. Yeah. Duke, you want to add anything to that, man? Well, I'll just underscore what, what, what you let off in your question with, which is that we see those as being distinct and that need to, they conceptually need to be understood as being distinct, but also that they're deeply intertwined. Yeah. Um, that, you know, really, even as you try to address these historical thefts of wealth, for example, let's say just uh, unrequited labor, right, uncompensated labor um, in the 19th century and before, uh, really, what was at the heart of that really was the theft of truth. And, and that, that is the identity of, of Black persons who were stolen and ripped away from their families uh, overseas. And so really, the recovery of that wealth actually also entails the recovery of the truth of who those image bearers really were. Mm -hmm. So these things uh, work dynamically together. And even to this day, as we uh, talk through, well, what does it look like to give back what is properly owed to people from whom these, whom these things have been simply taken? It will always also bring along with it those other components. There will always need to be a, a divestment of uh, control and personal power over the terms of the conversation or uh, the material possessions uh, that we have um, designated as being our own, or we will always need to tell better stories, more truth, overriding the lies that have been embedded in our institutions and even our own personal minds about who black people are, who white people are, and who everyone else is, what this country is. Um, it is all integrated and we need to do it all. Um, yeah. And so fanning it out in that way, I think really just helps us to see the true thieving effects of white supremacy for what it really is. Mm. Yeah. And there's a lot of folks that have said it in different ways. Eddie Glaude and, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson, I've sort of heard say it in, in many different ways that, that America is not unique in our sins. What we're unique in is the mythology that right. we've used to uh, ignore that they were sins to begin with, right? To create this idea of manifest destiny, a doctrine of discovery. And we've, we've never really looked back and we, we, we kind of still romanticize that history. And, and I mean, in Tennessee, y'all might know this, but we still got Nathan Bedford Forrest, one of the founders of the KKK, a, a statue of him in the Capitol in Tennessee, you know? And I've heard Brian, you know, Stevenson say, um, when you go to Germany, uh, you know, you don't see statues to the Nazis. You see statues to all the lives that were were, were victims of the Nazis. You know, we don't remember 9-11 by setting up statues to the, uh, the terrorists. We remember the names of the lives that were lost. And yet we've been erecting statues of the victimizers more than the victims. You know, and that's part of what, you know, I think we're the, the culture war right now over critical race theory and some some of this it, it isn't some of it about how we remember that history. Uh, would you say? Well, I'd, I'd say that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I think um, we could talk more about the critical race theory. I don't I think even if you think you to... mentioned those words in the book, which I think is quite wonderful because all it's become is sort of a, uh, a, it's, a it's a totem. And, uh, yeah, scapegoat, right? Let's just talk about this thing without talking about the real thing, right? Mm -hmm. so, that, yeah, that's no, that's right. But I, I do think that what you, um, this is actually a, a battle over who gets to determine how we describe ourselves. And I think what we see is white religious conservative leaders incensed that somebody else might have an account of history other than the one that they want out there um, and is willing to use different language. And I think we have to understand that a lot of what's going on, especially in the evangelical thought leadership world, so to speak, is, uh, is that um, they're trying to control the terms of the discussion. 
And that is right at the that is right at the heart of the theft of truth uh, for us. And so, I mean, I think this critical race theory thing is a complete disgrace. But what it is is an I mean, meaning the debate around it, and the way evangelicals are are spending their time thinking about that rather than thinking about the actual harmed, you know, like George Floyd dying in the street. Um, and I think that that's that really does relate to the fact that we the mythology is at stake. The mythology is at stake, yeah. and uh, and that's what we're fighting. Yeah, and I've heard Brian, uh, Brian say, you know, Brian Stevenson, we, we went to the same college, Eastern University. So, I, you know, we've been down there a bunch of times. It was down there actually before they even have, if y'all haven't been down to Montgomery, you know, to oh, yeah, the, I'm in. Yeah. the uh, no, I was, I, the folks looking on, you know, like you got to oh. get down to Montgomery and, and see the, uh, the uh, Legacy Museum and the Peace and Justice Memorial to the, uh, you know, I think it's over 4,000 documented lynchings now. Um, and uh, so, but that, you know, one of the things he says is we kind of, we, we won the battle over rights, but we lost the battle over the narrative. And you still hear people like, wasn't it the Duck Dynasty guy or something that was saying like, oh, wasn't that bad? You know, people were just picking cotton in the fields together or something like that. It's crazy, you know, and you, you have an interesting take on the, the reconstruction, right? In, in your book, you say that uh, both sides needed a way to triumph after the Civil War and they needed to understand each other uh, not as an enemy of democracy, democracy, but as a collaborator in reconstruction. So we've had this way that we kind of uh, re re reductionist history of romanticizing uh, not just slavery, but the reconstruction, right? So say a little bit more about that, Duke. Y'all do a really great job. I, I love that your take on the reconstruction, how we had to kind of uh, you know, uh, find a way to, <laughs> to act like this is about heritage, not hate or something, right? No, that's right. And, and, and some of the you find in places like Edward Bloom's work, Bloom's work, um, Reforging the White Republic, um, but just the way in which the country at these different moments in history always opted for a certain kind of unity, a certain kind of solidarity that set aside the real call to um, true racial healing. Uh, time and again, uh, we always put sectional reconciliation uh, before the call to racial reconciliation, true racial reconciliation. We uh, put uh, the, the, the broader sort of generically put nation's healing, uh, which really was, as Bloom would put it, uh, the healing of white relationships, setting aside the priority of those who actually were harmed, damaged and, and marginalized the most and that were um, African-Americans. And, that. and that's just a cycle that we've seen again and again. I think we see it most clearly around the re Reconstruction period and, and afterwards, uh, the Redemption era. Uh, but we see that even today. I mean, this really is just a, a habit of, of heart and soul um, that's a part of our American um, identity and history. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we, we are repeating history. We always have, and, and it's a cyclical thing. Unfortunately, uh, the hope is that we would just learn from it. But I really want to dive into the spirituality of this because y'all love Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Red Letter Christians, that's kind of what shapes so much of our passions, uh, even on talking about something like reparations, right? How do we heal the wounds of uh, hundreds of years of slavery and racism? And that subtitle, A Christian Call, you do such a good job at saying that that there's a unique calling in place for the church to step up right now, not just because of our complicity, and we'll talk about that, but because of our vocation, because of our mission of who we are. And I thought one of y'all should tell that story you tell 
about uh, James Foreman interrupting Riverside because I think it's one of those moments where there was sort of a wake up call. And it's one of the moments you point to where there was a, a really clear call for reparations from in the middle of a Christian setting. So that that uh, event that you you kind of talk about in 1969, re retell that story real quick. Yeah, we tell that story in chapter uh, chapter four um, in the introduction of that chapter. Um, James Foreman, who, who was a civil rights activist in that time, um, marched with King and others, um, and uh, essentially wrote what he called the Black Manifesto, um, which was a call to uh, Jewish and Christian, uh, Jewish synagogues and Christian churches uh, to pay reparations uh, for the harms, the exploitation, uh, the theft, uh, the, the, the rape, the murder of African-Americans. And so what he did to really broadcast his message, he was very strategic and intentional, in fact, but he picked one of the, the biggest steeples in New York City, historic uh, uh, Riverside Church, uh, struts right down the center aisle, turns around and uh, interrupts the entire service after the opening hymn, in fact, uh, if you could just imagine this moment, and uh, starts to read off this manifesto, which basically says, y'all are guilty <laughs> and, and you need to pay up. And of course, no one loved the message and he, his plan wasn't just to make it a moment, but rather to make it a movement. And so what they did was he and uh, others that he had gathered uh, along his side uh, began to pay visits to denominational headquarters and major uh, uh, church institutions around the country um, demanding that payment be made. Now, of course, people can quibble about this or that, uh, you know, different parts of his argument and whether it's cogent and such. Uh, but the force of the argument was significant. Every single, we don't even know this history. That's the biggest problem, right? Everyone needs to know the story of George, uh, James, For George Foreman, James Foreman and, uh, and the Black Manifesto. Every denomination, churches across the country were talking about this. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a forgotten history and we need to recover it because here's the truth. The, the question was never answered. Uh, the response was fairly meager. Um, most churches found ways not to respond either by justifying themselves, defending themselves, or just completely rejecting uh, the call on the basis of the rhetoric that he used or writing it off as Marxist, which sounds familiar. Um, and uh, so anyway, it just a, 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 a significant moment sort of in the story of reparations in the life of the church and a call that remains yet to be answered. Yeah, and you got this powerful line, you know, it's from Calvin Marshall III that they kind of said, well, why single out the church? You know, because there's a lot of people that think about reparations and they immediately go to the government, you know, the government. And you're, you're really clear that, yes, the government's got a responsibility on this, too. Uh, but you also point to some places the government's done, maybe even a little that might uh, raise the bar for the church, you know. And this, this quote, though, from Calvin Marshall III, he said, so this was his response, why single out the church? And he said, because the church is the only institution claiming to be in the business of salvation, resurrection, and the giving and restoring of life. General Motors has never made that kind of claim. <laughs> Woo! So, I, I mean, you really invite us to think about how this is the holy work of God, right? This is the, the reign of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus said. So um, talk me a little bit more about the, uh, to use a big word, y'all, ecclesiology, right? How we think about the church or the, the mission of the church should, uh, this should be on our radar, reparations. 
Yeah. Why don't you continue to elaborate? Because I, I want to talk just in, after you're done with that, talk about the, the kind of spirituality behind this, too. So I, I'd love to hear you kind of flesh out the ecclesiology. Yeah. I mean, like you said, Shane, a, a lot of us think about reparations and our responsibility to make reparations primarily in terms of guilt. And that's proper. And that's true. Right. And we'll talk about that. And that's the ethics of restitution and stuff. If you steal something, you got to give it back. But Christians, I think, are uniquely on the hook because this is who we are. Uh, we are called to be repairers. We are called to be healers. Uh, we are a people that was constituted by an act of love, Christ crucified and risen again uh, for sinful, broken people like us. And so it, it, it is in our, 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 our very uh, identity to actually be those who step out sacrificially to love those and to restore uh, the gaping wounds of this world. And so it really, what we try to do in uh, the book is to present what we call sort of a twofold moral logic to reparations. And that is first the ethic of restitution that we find uh, presented and embodied in the, uh, in the story of Zacchaeus, right? So again, restitution, if you steal something, you got to give it back. But there's also another story that's very significant to this call. It's a story of a robbery and it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And that is that even if you're a stranger, even if you weren't the one that caused the theft in the first place, even if you weren't the one uh, that was there in antebellum America, even if you weren't there in the civil rights era, you are called to love and to heal and to do it sacrificially, to give up your proverbial horse, to give up your proverbial paycheck, to go to the proverbial innkeeper and say, here's a blank check, charge it to me, right? This is what Christians are called to do. Remember, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan as a imaginative exposition of the second great commandment. Ooh. You should love your neighbor as yourself. It's as basic as that, which is why Dr. King had so much to say about it, right? He said, this is just a call to love. That's all this is. And so for us as Christians to walk away without even giving it serious thought, and that's not to say there isn't a lot of serious conversation that needs to be had around this, but to just walk away from it, to stiff arm it, to refuse to even take seriously the call to reparations, is actually to deny our, the very center of our identity of people of, as people of love, uh, mm. people of gospel love, agape love, as King would uh, say and has repeated about it uh, again and again. Um, so what, what we want to emphasize is this is not only because of the culpability of the church, but also the mission of the church and the identity of the church that should push us in this direction. Yeah. Tell us, tell us more, Greg. Woo. Well, I think that... Um, I, I like that you started with the uh, with the language of the word spiritual, Shane, because one of the questions we've had to ask is why doesn't the evangelical church, let's say, and the the, the quote white church uh, more broadly speaking, why have we not taken this up? And um, and I think part of it is directly related to our spiritual practices. Remember, um, a lot of the kind of spirituality that people in this country encounter in in white and evangelical spaces, like Duke and I have been in essentially center around a powerful white dude telling people how they ought to think about things. And it's like, uh, it's essentially, a, it, it's policing the margins all the time and deciding who's in and who's out. But one of the things that, and you know, we were talking about the common prayer, the liturgy for ordinary radicals book that y'all put out. And, you know, I've been living by a modified version of the Benedictine rule for almost 11 years now. And that, that takes you to the margins, not to police them, but to dwell with the people who are there. And so That's I think right. that one of, the, one of the things you have to understand is it's like no surprise that reparations isn't emerging out of a community whose primary public ethos is self-righteousness. How could it 
How could it? But when you when you have a spirituality that roots you daily in the practice of communing and dwelling with the Christ who is with the poor, who is with the oppressed, um, when, when you're with that Christ, reparations make sense. And so I actually think that it's not just about like, oh, let's do the exegesis of the Good Samaritan. And oh, my God, this is a theft story. You know, I mean. It is, but why we, Why didn't we see that? Because we're being formed to believe ourselves to be righteous and to be victimized by outside bad guys who are coming in with their Marxist costumes on to destroy us, rather than being formed into people who dwell with Christ, who is moving in the world, who lives at the places of pain, and who is calling us to be bringers of life there. I think it's actually at the level of spiritual practice, uh, at the level of subconscious theological imagination. And I think that is where the, the real anemia, the real constricted arteries are, because you have people who spend all this time learning original languages like Duke and I did in seminary. And yet their theological imag imagination is so withered that they can't even see the thing that's in front of them. It doesn't matter if they can conjugate the verbs, right? Mm. Because they haven't been dwelling with the Christ who is poor. And maybe another and, way to Go for it. Sorry, man. And I was saying, and when you and, and it's and when you do that, when you give yourself to this spiritual practice, a whole other imaginative lens opens mm. up for you, and reparations becomes not just like, oh, that's interesting. It becomes an undeniable and beautiful call. That's good. That's so good. Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, even to take the the parable of the Good Samaritan, it, it's a it's a spiritual formation that has led far too many of us to identify first and foremost with the Samaritan. <laughs> right, the, the, the person, person with the resources to give, the person, right, rather than first and foremost seeing ourselves as the wounded victim in need, right, as far as needing the rescue of Christ, and also uh, with the blindness of not seeing ourselves in the expert of the law, which Jesus was telling this story to in the first place, because here's, here's the dude that was hearing Jesus lead him into having to confess that God calls him to love his neighbor and his only response is, wait, hold on, let, let, let's have some dialogue. Who's my neighbor? Who, yeah. who's, who's my neighbor, right? Let's talk about this a little bit more when Jesus is really just saying, we just love your, your neighbor, right? Um, yeah. So you're, you're right on, Greg. This is you, good. Do, you, you do a good job saying, when, you know, when, when you're asking who is my neighbor, you're, you're kind of asking who's not my neighbor, like who, who's exempt from my compassion and love. Use this word, I had to look it up, y'all. Uh, uh, causistry or you know that that word right uh uh that uh, define that because i had to look it up yeah i oh, mean go ahead dude. yeah no i mean that's it's just uh, uh, uh you know sort of pedantically <laughs> sort of trying to uh prosecute the the nuances and the details asking questions sort of essentially to escape uh the the plain matter at hand right casuistry right sort of uh uh, trying to, to, to nuance your way out of accountability in that case, right? And this yeah. is just what we do, right? When the hard, simple call of radical love comes, we just have, we have questions. I, I, maybe it was Chester, somebody said, uh, uh, good thing we got scholarship to protect ourselves from the Bible, right? Because we can just <laughs> kind of pontificate it rather than live it. That's and right. it, I think it was Mark Twain that says, not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me, but the parts of the Bible I do understand. So, y'all, yeah. we're talking about red letter Christianity. These guys both do an amazing job in this book of, you know, showing the call of Zacchaeus and 
the Good Samaritan is two different um, ways of thinking about this because there is that, you know, the tax collector was was very much um, uh, complicit, you know, a part of the system. So it makes sense that, you know, he's going to sell half of everything, pay people back four times. But then the Good Samaritan, as you said, Duke, is a this is just something that we come across. You know, we were born into this world where people got beat up. So what are we going to do about it? And interestingly, I think, you know, as you were talking, I thought it, it, Jesus's story is scandalous because the religious folks are the ones that avoid the problem. And uh, it's no, no coincidence that Jesus flipped the tables in the temple. You know, it wasn't just in the, the marketplace of Rome, but it was in the temple. His harshest mm-hmm. words, you know, like brood of vipers were for the, the, he just seems to have a different bar, you know, for the church. I mean, he's not expecting Herod to have, you know, all this, this compassion. But for us, I think y'all do such a good job with that. And, and let's talk a little bit more about that, because you do a good job of, of saying this is both, we need to recognize in the church, both our failure but also our faithfulness right and we can see both um so maybe give an example of the faithfulness but also man when you were talking about our failure and how the church was owning slaves and profiting off of leasing out slaves as as you know the book said the the worst kind of slavery right i mean this is pretty brutal so give us a little bit of the dose that you give in the book of the faithfulness that you where, where we can be proud of ourselves but also some of the the dirt we need to recognize and work with yeah i mean i think um what we're trying to do is is uh, there, well we talk about the the theft of truth there there are two ways to tell lies about this one of them is to say that the church has only been awesome and that we're the bearers of the gospel and that we're the ones who are preserving it against the kind of onslaught of the illiberal hordes right but then on the other hand there's this there's a way of saying the church is just all stupid and it's all fake and it's all complicit and all that and i just know too many christians to know that i've seen too many beautiful things and to, to believe that and so I think I'll do the I'll do the faithfulness part. Uh, Duke, you're welcome. Uh, and, <laughs> and the the uh, I mean, look, I work on abolitionism right now. Right. I'm building National Memorial, the Underground Railroad. And that's that's primarily a black story. And it needs to be told as a black story. But it is also a collaboration story. And that's one of the amazing things about it. And the fact is, during the abolitionist movement, um, which is it, which is, you know, really the longest standing civil rights movement um, in American history. Um, the very, very, very long standing movement. Um, Christians were all involved in that. They were all over the place in that work and, and as they were in the, in the civil rights movement. And those aren't, you know, the only two things that have, that have ever happened in America, but those are, those are two really important places where the church, with respect to, bless you, boy, with respect to this whole, this conversation around anti-black racism in America, the church does have a history. And I mean, white folks too, does have a history of saying, this is not, this is not true. This is not, this is not Christian. And we have to give our lives to fight against this. And I think that that, that is not only the anti-slavery movement and the abolitionist movement, but also the underground railroad movement, which was the more radical edge of those things. Um, And so I, I think that we have to mine those resources as ways to help us imagine what it means to live faithfully in our own time. Mm. What we talk about in the book is the importance of embracing the whole of the complicated history of the church. Yeah. And, um, and that we, in other words, that we cannot be selective if we are to be people of the truth. And, and that, again, it, it, it 
it cuts both ways. Uh, and, and I'll say this because today, right now, it's um, pretty common and maybe even faddish to only trash the church. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's right. because we have done a good job of of giving good reason to do so, right? I mean, we, lots of public mistakes, just horrific right. demonstrations of poor, uh, even evil public witness. Um, but listen, if all we if all we do is um, is see if all we can see is the failure of the church, then we have no hope. I mean, this is if, if we truly are people of the resurrection, then we can believe that no matter how small the remnant of God's faithful people might be, uh, he can feed a multitude with a few small, crusty loaves of bread. <laughs> he can do a lot with a little. And this has always been the history of abolition and resistance against white supremacy. I mean, really, uh, to think um, it's important to remember that resistance against white supremacy, though never popular in American church history, uh, is a part of our Christian heritage. <laughs> there, 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 there is a legacy that we can draw from of people who have uh, humbly tried to do it right and that we can try to emulate. Uh, so I think even understanding the, the positive sides of our past, I think is important to generate the kind of hope that we need to walk into the darkness in that sort of way. But on the other hand, yeah, uh, as we say in the book, uh, the body of Christ, even as one hand was healing, Greg just told that story, the other hand was stealing. Mm. Um, and yeah. so uh, story after story after story of um, ways in which uh, American Christians, both individually and institutionally, participated in all three of these kinds of thefts that we described earlier. So the theft of truth, the theft of power, and the theft of wealth. I mean, most obviously on all three of those fronts in the way in which the church was the moral cement that held together, together the edifice of um, institutional slavery, um, right? So that, it, that would not have either um, uh, arrived or lasted as long as it did um, if the Christian church had not been, as uh, our forebears put it, the bulwark of slavery in, in America. Mm. Um, but as you mentioned, yeah, d different points of evidence in the ways that we stole the truth literally from enslaved persons stealing pages of scripture in order to teach them lies, catechize them with lies in order to control them. Um, the theft of, of uh, 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 truth as is, is, um, far as um, embedding into the Christian imagination um, a belief of uh, one group of image bearers superiority, inherent superiority over another group, namely those that are darker skinned. And then to say that it's actually the churches and the pulpits uh, responsibility to maintain that order, uh, yeah. which it has been doing ever since, right? And we see this, especially in the early days of the Jim Crow era, uh, turn of the century where pulpits uh, continued that narrative of African-Americans as being inherently disorderly and dangerous, and therefore needing to come up with some way uh, to enforce social control, both inside the church, outside the church. If, if slavery is no longer here to help us, then we need to find other ways uh, to protect ourselves, especially our women uh, and children, and uh, to protect our orderly society uh, from uh, these beasts. And this is where violence um, uh, arose and um, really essentially is means of control. So again, the theft of truth, the theft of power, and of course, the theft of wealth. Uh, this has been the story of the church. We have been perpetrators of white supremacist theft. 
we corporately and collectively have been accomplices as well. Uh, the power behind the throne, <laughs> right? Uh, so standing right behind um, officials and institutions of, of the state um, in order to enforce white supremacy and its thefts. And then finally, uh, even among the good people, right? The people of goodwill as Dr. King would have described them, moderate folks who stood by silently, who actually had the power and the authority to do something, to reverse, to resist, and to change, to restore. And yet one of the clearest legacies of the church in the face of these monstrosities is its silence, mm. its passivity, um, its insistence on being a willful bystander, mm. even as violent robberies are being committed right in front of our own eyes. And our greatest danger perhaps today is to continue that legacy. Oh, 100%. Be, right, yeah. and to be willful, uh, conscious, negligent bystanders in the face of continuing theft or even negligence uh, in the face of the call to repair those thefts. Ooh. It's the church, man. I mean, we're the, responsible the, on, on, on all these different axes, all these fronts. The, the faithfulness and the failure, uh, or as, you know, Martin Luther, he's, he said, every one of us has a sinner and a saint that are at war within us. And I think right. we can see that, you know, in the church itself, in the body of Christ, that we had that going on. And that's why, you know, that y'all that are listening in, for, for some folks that, you know, you leave one version of Christianity doesn't mean that that's all that, you know, I think like leaving some of the most toxic versions of white evangelicalism without recognizing that there's a bigger landscape of what the spirit's been doing in the church. It, it still allows that to colonize the imagination. And, you know, I heard somebody say, it's like, uh, if you went to one bad concert, given all, uh, all music up, you know, and I think that that, that you know, <laughs> kind of the danger is, uh, um, but, you know, and, and it seems like in it true, you guys, that, that like each tradition has got its own funk. And that's why you talk about the particularity of it. You know, the Quakers, I mean, man, being in Pennsylvania, they were ahead of their time on a lot of things. Right. They, still, they still got their funk and they got to figure that out, you know, but like the Southern Baptist Church. Better work with some stuff, right? Better work with some truth telling of that history or else it continues to be this festering, untreated wound that continues to resurface. And I got a lot of friends that aren't sure if they can continue in the Southern Baptist Church if it won't do some of that, uh, you know, self-reflection and also the necessary steps they need to heal the wounds of what they did in the past. I mean, some of our whole denominations were founded because they were on the wrong side of these issues. So uh, I don't know if you want to say more about that either y'all, but I, I think I want to say, I want us to talk just a little bit more about the principalities and powers, the spiritual dynamic of some of this, because there's this thing of, you know, the scripture says that perfect love casteth out fear. And it seems like part of what you name in the book that I see kind of everywhere is there's this, this fear, right? Mm. And the power structures of white America, um, you know, the changing demographics of our country and the folks that have held the narrative and that have held the power are now realizing that there's, you know, we've come on the back of the first black president, the changing demographics of Congress, you know, all the stuff that we see. And you hear a lot of this is coming out of a place of like uh, uh, that, that fragility, that fear, that, that sense of uh, uh, the majority is now no longer 
holding the reins of power. And when a lot of people were saying, make America great again, they, they meant really clearly make America white again, you know? So let's talk about that fear just a little bit. Cause I think you do such a good job of naming the fact that we we've got to choose love and love requires something of us. It's not just sentimental love. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think Shane, one of the things that, that all of us have to do, you know, all of us viewing this, um, is we have to come to terms with the fact that evangelicalism is not really a theological project. It is a cultural project. And at the heart of that cultural project was the notion that we are the people who are the stewards of the gospel, that we're the people who are keeping the liberals and everybody else at bay, and that we are the ones who have gotten it right. Um, and I think what is happening, whether it's through critical race theory or whether it's your basic like observation of planet Earth, um, people are recognizing that that is not true. Um, and so the cultural project itself, which is which has a theological, it's a cultural project that speaks with a theological accent. And so mm -hmm. I think that we have to just we really have to take that seriously that what when all these people, when all these anti-CRT people and all these like Patrick Henry speeches are going on at every denominational gathering around the nation right now, those are in defense of a cultural project that consistently mistakes itself for a theological one. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so what happens is uh, you can feel this fear, but then you justify your reactions based on theological grounds um, by saying, well, there's the Marxists or there's all these people that are coming in here. We got to stand strong. And I think the, the fact of the matter is that what we what we are seeing is the is this cultural project is being profoundly challenged as it should be. And that is leading people <laughs> to be very, very afraid. And I mean, I don't know if y'all saw the Atlantic article next week about how this CRT thing really started yeah. in terms of like the you know Republican political operative who's like, this is an opportunity. Um, the whole thing is about cultivating fear. I mean, yeah. this this is like J. Edgar Hoover part two. OK, I mean, you got to And we've said this before, but like one thing you can count on is that whenever black people start talking about liberation, white white Christians start talking about Marxism like you can you can like count on it. And so and that marks and at the, the heart of that is this fear that something bad is going to happen to us. Um, and I think that that is that is blinding us and making us fools. And I, and I think there's there's the deliberate and conscious cultivation, strategic cultivation of fear, like what you're talking about, Greg, there. But I think there's another dimension to this, and it, it's, it's a little bit more mystical, if that's the right way yeah. to put it. And it's this. Uh, we touch upon it very briefly, almost in passing in the book. But there's a tradition in our Christian heritage that understands not only that restitution is mandated for those that are guilty of theft. You have to give that back. That thing that you stole, you have to give it back to whoever it's owed to. But that if you don't, based upon places like mm -hmm. Jeremiah 17 or Job 20, different places in scripture, Proverbs 21, if you don't, you invite a curse upon your household. Uh, what uh, old theologians used to describe as a secret withering curse. And one of the dimensions of that curse, according to Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan, wrote on repentance and all that, had a lot to say about restitution. He says is that the, the thief, the unrepentant thief that refuses to give back is that curse is fear. Uh, mm. Shane, I, I, I don't think it's going too far to say that America has invited upon itself 
a curse Ooh. whose name is fear. I got, I got chill bumps and, on that. Listen, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're listen, right. Listen, you know, and, 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 and sadly, tragically, Christians are the ones that are pumping it the most, right? I mean, Marilyn Robinson in her fine essay from a couple of years ago, you know, she said, you know, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And yet that's exactly what Christians are most known for peddling, uh, right? On all number of different fronts. I, I really do believe that there's something that's worth exploring about what has happened to our collective soul mm. because of our refusal to actually repair the harms of white supremacy, biblically speaking, that we have been told, if you don't do that, you actually will find yourselves corrupted, confused, disoriented by a besetting fear. And I think that's exactly what we see playing out right in front of us. Mm. Yeah, that's what King, and King picked up on that, you know, um, when he talked about America being a sick nation. Yeah. I remember saying, remember saying, uh, America is, is a nation that is predicated upon doing something, that is to say, oppressing African-Americans, while convincing ourselves that we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. That means that at the heart of our moral national life is, is, is pathology. This is like, it's like psychosis is built into it. And this is why when you read James Baldwin, it's why when you read Ralph Ellison, you see that the white folks in the novel are blind or drunk. Mm-hmm. Why? They're saying like, this is some, there's something that has happened to us morally that, I mean, because if you have multiple centuries of lying to yourself and knowing that you're lying to yourself about what's happening, it does things to you and it creates paranoid, deceptive, pathological kind of culture. And that's what we're, that's what we're up against. Let me, let me read real quick what Thomas Watson writes about this. Again, this, this is on page 151 from the book quoted there. If anyone wants to look it up, he writes, the thief is a terror to himself. He is always in fear. Guilt breeds fear. If he hears but the shaking of a tree, his heart shakes. If a briar doth but take hold of a thief's garment, he's afraid it is the officer to apprehend him. And fear hath torment. We're a Ooh. tormented people. We are a sick people. 100 Mm, mm. <laughs> all right wow wow i think i feel like we just need to sit with that just for a second i mean the, one of the curses of white supremacy mm. wow mm. i mean think about it the whole the whole white supremacy was sustained through things like whips and right. chains terror like the the whole thing even the material culture that we have um is predicated upon like our vulnerability and how we have to keep it all at bay. And I think it just, the fear, it is grotesque, um, but it is, it is absolutely what is deserved because of the choices that we've made. Mm. And there's a sense in which um, making different choices has a emancipatory habit of mind. You know, the truth will set you free. That's right. As someone said, but isn't it true? You know, like even when you're a kid and you do something wrong, like you got, you got this sense that like, I got to tell, you know, then, then you tell, I got told my mom, I I stole it. I wanted this little puzzle from the, I don't know why they had a puzzle at the grocery store, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. Cause it, you know, and I stole, I took this little thing home and then I told my mom later, you know, I, I, I took this from the grocery store and she said, we're going to take it back. You know, and we took it back and I told them and they, you know, patted me on the head or whatever. But like after, you know, I feel like all the more with what we've done in this country, 
that lie, the lies we've told ourselves, the ways that we, it, it, it has cursed us. It's made us, uh, um, and, and only the truth is going to set us free. So now in, in, in the end of this, um, I want to get to this idea of the reparation stuff that you, you know, the call to repair. Now, what you do so good, though, I think is you don't get anecdotal. You know, I mean, uh, because, first of all, because you're very, you know, uh, you're, you're very honest about that. It's not yours to, uh, to, to say what reparations really look like, but you're listening to a lot of other folks, especially whose ancestors were, you know, carried the brunt of this injustice. But you do, you know, you do talk with some practitioners and you said they give us kind of a framework. So while it's not an anecdote, there's not, it's not like, you know, what Princeton did with their particular incident to say, we're going to do this because we profited in this much, you know, they're working with themselves, but you, you, you offer, you know, some real wisdom from these folks you, you uh, listen to. So uh, give us a little dose of that because you end the book with that call to repair, which I found, you know, really helpful because it's, it's, it's not an anecdote, but it is a starting point. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we we tried to center African-American voices and we said in the intro, for those of you who have not heard or read the book, um, you know, reparations is by nature a two-party conversation. There's those who owe and those to whom reparations are owed. And each each part of that conversation has its own respective requirements. Ours was to tell the truth, to confess our sin, um, and to exhort our brothers and sisters to step forward into the work of repair. This is, this is a book written from the perspective of the penitent thief on the cross. Okay. That's if, if, if theology were written from that perspective, that's what this is. And, but then there's the other side of the conversation where our African-American brothers and sisters need to say, well, here's how we think the, here's how we think it should look here are the shapes that we think it should take. Um, and so that's what we really try to do in chapter seven. And, and they're really just two broad categories. One is, Reparations about who we are. We talk about being a people of repair and what this will require of us. And we talk about, you know, the vulnerability of community, um, being able to enter in into these relationships. We talk about, we use the language of the humiliation of truth, which is to say, we really have to let ourselves be humbled by the, by the truth. We have to renounce control. Um, and that is to say, we can't determine the shape of these conversations. We can't center ourselves in these conversations. And finally, we have to revalue wealth. We have to really ask ourselves, what is our wealth for? Why, why do we have what we have? And, and, and I think that's part of the work of being people of repair. And then, then we sl- switch to this place called the, the practices of truth. And it just maps on to the reparations of truth, power, and wealth. And we talk about the need to acknowledge the truth and the need to recover it and need to memorialize it. Um, we talk about power. We talk about you know, how we, we need to, to see the power that we have. We need to bring the power we need to enable the power of other people, right? These are just, the, these are the things that we picked up. And then in terms of repairing wealth, we have to work to build the capacity for wealth in, in, in black communities. We have to remove obstacles, policy and, and otherwise, and we have to transfer wealth. There, there is a transfer of wealth that is fundamental to this thing. And so I think that um, those are just the kind of big headlines, but really getting inside of those and figuring out what it means for your community to cultivate people who are capable of repair. And then to begin to focus on those three areas. Like how do we repair truth? Like my work is mostly in the reparations of truth world. That's what I, that's what I do. I'm working on memorialization and on public storytelling. Um, other people are going to be working in power. Other people are going to be working in wealth. And I think collaboratively though, we could, we could over time, Lord willing, roll this thing uh, into a new world. Mm. Let me, let me add a few comments because we get this question often like, well, why didn't you guys spell it out in more detail? Some of the reason is because of what you mentioned earlier, Shane, but just to again, sort of walk through this again, 
part of it is because we believe that it's really important for people to pay attention to what's going on in their local communities, right? We, want, we don't want to be prescriptive uh, as far as like, this is what everyone needs to do everywhere in every way. Uh, you, we need to be doing this in step with African-American leadership nearby uh, in accordance with the ways in which white supremacy has uniquely done damage to our local communities. This is a local endeavor. But secondly, uh, that we, in terms of the posture we need to take, we need to understand that we are followers <laughs> and not leaders in this, that we actually need to uh, follow the leadership of local black uh, community leaders, church leaders, and, and all the rest. And this is what we talk about in that last chapter of the book as well. Uh, thirdly, as you mentioned in our highlighting chain, we understand this is a spiritual practice. This is what Greg was just talking about in terms of uh, becoming a people of repair. This is not just a transactional enterprise. We, it's not just right. about going and doing. We need to be changed lest we actually, actually recapitulate the, the same errors and the same uh, 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 pathologies uh, that marks the church's mistakes uh, in, in the past. We need to grow in repentance. We need to grow in humility. We need to descend from our perches of supremacy, as it were, like Zacchaeus had to from uh, that sycamore tree, right? And then uh, finally, that we just uh, need to understand that we have no clue what we're doing. We have no clue what we're doing. This is a new conversation for most American Christians. Uh, it's why we talk in terms of of generating a new moral, imag new moral imagination, uh, that we need to cultivate a different way of even seeing these issues and talking about them, and that we trust over time as we're in dialogue and as we have the right posture that God will give us the creativity and the ideas to actually come up with strategies uh, and, and uh, programs, actions uh, that are actually reparative in our local communities. Mm. That is, that is it. Now I got, I got, I took up all the time y'all. Uh, we did have a few questions that came in, but I, I, I hogged it. I didn't even get all, all mine. I have all my little notes here. I felt like I was about to take an exam. I, I could have, I would have aced this book, this book. I think we were the but, ones taking the exam. Here. No, I think so, no, but, but here's one question that, that I think this is from Laura on Facebook. She asked um, that, you know, how can she, as a teacher, as an educator, what are some tools for teaching this in the classroom? And I think even beyond that, you know, maybe you, there's a few other resources you want to name that might help people continue to grow into truth telling in their own capacity. Um, so that was Laura's question, though, kind of how do I how do we teach this to our kids, whether we're educators or doing this in our family or even Sunday schools? Right. Yeah, well, I, th I think, you know, it's one thing to teach the book. Right. Which is, you know. You can go through and we wrote it pretty, pretty cleanly in the sense of like there are these categories that you could lift out pretty easily and fill in in a way that makes sense for your audience. But it's another thing to teach the things that are necessary um, for to develop a reparative imagination. And, and one of the one of the most important horizons for this is in schools. Um, I mean, we're actually having a national debate right now as to whether we can talk about structural racism in American schools. I mean, I, I feel like this is, this is, George Wallace wouldn't even done that. I'm serious. Like, this is astonishing. The things that we're, that we're hearing right now, where people are saying, we're not going to talk about systemic racism. We're going to make it illegal to do that. Or we're going to defund schools that do that. We have to teach our children that we live in the longest standing white supremacist social order in the history of the world. We have to do that. It's not the only thing that's true about it, but I think that one of the opportunities that we have as teachers and as Sunday school teachers and everything else is to say, 
I'm going to learn these things so I can really open the eyes of these children that are these, these students that I'm working with. Um, and I think that that is more important than teaching this particular book. Um, but uh, just as an aside, we, we want to do a study guide for this book. We just haven't, we haven't finished it yet. And so um, cool. we'll hope when, when that comes out, we'll upload that to the website. But I really think for all y'all listening, the, one of the most important things that we can do is to teach the truth about our national history and then teach the truth about their theological obligations in response mm-hmm. to that history. And I really believe the spirit led people will figure out what to do. Good. Duke, last word, man. Any, any other thoughts on that? Well, I think that there's an interesting hunger for history these days. I see that yeah. in, in this generation, like more than you ever used to see. And um, I would capitalize on that. I think people are, are wanting a, a better narrative to live by. And I mean that both in terms of understanding American history for what it really is, but I also mean that in terms of understanding scripture for what it really says. And um, so I would just encourage people to step out courageously, you know, with a lot of wisdom in terms of what the specific needs are in a local community, right? Not everyone can move from zero to 60 overnight, right? You gotta be wise and and walking with people and bringing them along, especially kids as well, right? So being attentive uh, to their their needs and what they're ready for. Um, But I think it takes a lot of courage, right? It requires courage to actually do the work um, be fearless in the way that we are uh, retelling the truth and to trust that the Lord will bless it. I think he is, uh, but this is why we, we have the hope of the resurrection uh, to believe that all dead things can, can come undead, Woo. right? Um, all dead things can live. And that includes the dead stories, <laughs> the dead lies, uh, the dead untruth that's been told and that's been embedded in the minds and the hearts of Christian institutions and individuals. Uh, we're, what we're really talking about here is, is, is not just a work, it's life, it's resurrection life. And that, that makes us hopeful. Uh, and we're glad to have everyone be a part of it. That's it. That's it. We're going to come back to you in just a second, Duke, to pray us out. Yeah, and uh, yeah. y'all, we're talking about reparations, uh, a Christian call for repentance and repair. Duke Juan and Gregory Thompson uh, tonight. So share this book, read this book. Um, just a couple of quick things on the horizon. And Duke's going to pray us out. Thank you all for tuning in. All right. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're looking to you as our only hope. We live in a dark and broken world that still shines uh, glimmers of your light, your, your, your life. And it gives us, it fuels our hearts. It gives us hope. And, and yet there's so much darkness, brokenness around us. And so we're clinging to you. And everything we've been talking about, ultimately, this is for you to give you the reward of your suffering, your death, your resurrection, uh, all that you died for, the repair of this world. And we pray that you would strengthen our hearts for this task, this call to reparations, uh, the work of repair. And I pray that you would move in the hearts of different people that are listening to this conversation, even ourselves, uh, agitate us where we need to be agitated, uh, strengthen us where we feel weak, encourage us where we feel discouraged, Give us wisdom where we feel foolish and uh, bless our endeavors. And, and, and we pray for a mighty work of transfer, transformation, even revival across this land and in the churches of this land. Yeah. But we pray not only for ourselves, ultimately we pray for our black brothers and sisters for whom we long to labor and love. Uh, this is ultimately about them and their uh, uplift, their healing, uh, their blessing. And we pray that you would encourage their hearts and be near to them even tonight. And so thank you for this time, this chance to talk, this chance to be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hallelujah.
Thank you. What a, what a holy conversation. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, man. brother. Thanks, Thanks so much, for your word. We'll, we'll stay in touch. Love y'all. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Peace, buddy. Blessings, yeah, everybody. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this special Red Letter Christians Book Club conversation. The loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or faithful voices. We know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. So thank you for listening to the Red Letter Christians podcast, where we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said.